Welcome to the Eventful Entrepreneur. My name's Dodge. I've been an entrepreneur for over 30 years and thrown thousands of parties across the UK. And I'm also the owner of the Bournemouth Sevens Festival. Everyone who knows me knows I love people, having a laugh <laughs> and asking lots of questions. So I've been chatting to people with one thing in common. They've all lived eventful lives. This week, I'm delving into the eventful life of Ambrose Mendy. As a pioneering sports agent and manager, Ambrose has represented some of the biggest names in boxing and football. From Paul Ince to James DeGale to Chris Eubank Jr. and of course the dark destroyer Nigel Benn. In the first of a two-part podcast, we chat about racism in sport, prison riots, his experiences of discrimination as a black man in 70s London and how he became the leader of the so-called Black Pack. Please be warned, this part includes some language that you may find offensive, including shocking racial slurs which Ambrose was subjected to. Here is the man himself, Mr. Ambrose Mendy. Ambrose, welcome to the show, mate. <laughs> Here we go. Here we go. I'm looking forward to this one. Snap. Let's get cracking. Let's go all the way back to the beginning. Where, whereabouts did you grow up? And um, I'm really intrigued to know about your journey. Yeah, I... I was um, true Cockney, um, born in Mile End Hospital. To parents, my dad came from Gambia, West Africa, although he was born in Guinea-Bissau, was orphaned at a very young age. And my mum came from Bridgewater in Somerset. And in fact, my mum, my mum's grandmother was a white Russian Jewess. You can work that way. Yeah, I'm trying to work that out. Yeah. No, it's, it's um, you know, I was brought and raised in a house that, I had great respect for Judaism, um, but my mum was a, a most wonderful, wonderful woman. Um, she, when, we, when we got to the age of sort of four or five, um, there you are, you know, mm -hmm. go. The Salvation Army would be knocking at the door, the Church Army, Seventh-day Adventist, um, Church of England, and um, my mum was happy to get the kids from out from under her feet mm. and knowing that you were in safe hands. Kids from under her feet. How many kids are you talking about? Um, I've got 10 brothers and sisters. 10? Ten. 10. From the same mum and dad? Same mum and dad. My God. Yep. <laughs> Fair play. And where were you on the ranking there? From Number the four. Number four. Number four. And what was, your, what was your route then, Ambrose? Tell me your route. You were an East London boy. What, what got you into sport and from where you are? Back then to where you are today, really. Yes, sport was a really strange thing. My my best buddy in the in the world um, was a footballer. His name was Laurie Cunningham, who's probably the finest pure footballing talent this country's ever produced. Um, became the first English player or Englishman to play for Real Madrid, and um, was the first. Well, in fact, he was the second black player to play for. Real Madrid. Prior to that, he'd been at West Bromwich Albion, where he featured, of course, um, with the late great Cyril Regis. Yeah. And uh, what a lovely man Cyril was, eh? Yeah, yeah, great. Mm. Plenty of laughs. Yeah. And did you get? Were you playing football back in the day? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, uh, I was particularly adept. Um, had five yards of pace. Doesn't mean a lot to people now. Describing football, but it meant an awful lot then. It meant you could get in and out yeah. and, and under and away. Yeah. I was I went to to West Ham. All looked good, looked looked fantastic. In fact, I, they came round and scouted me 
taxi came down our road in Hackley, Pembury Grove, and uh, stopped outside our house. Well, a taxi never—I'd never even seen a taxi in our road. Never mind, <laughs> <laughs> never, never mind anything else. Yeah. We never went hungry or anything like that. Yeah. But believe you me, um, we operated on a tight budget. Yeah. So anyway, the, not the, surprised with ten, eleven of you. Yeah, <laughs> these these guys got out the out the cab and yeah. said, you know, we're looking for Ambrose Mendy. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, what what have I done? Mm. And um, they said, no, no, it's okay. You know, like we're from West Ham Football Club. We need to speak to your mum. Yeah. Prior to this, I'd been going on Tuesdays each week to Stamford Bridge to Chelsea. And the Chelsea that had such illustrious great players, you know, Peter Rosgood, Charlie Cook, yeah. Alan Hudson, Ian Hutchison. I remember all their names because they used to give me their luncheon vouchers. Younger kids won't know yeah. what luncheon vouchers yeah. were, but, but they were... Um, a meal supplement you could go in a local cafe or whatever and get egg beans That's chips right. and whatever and da, da, da. Yeah. so of course the senior pros if you were cleaning their boots yeah um we'd always say have these and i could flog some of them in school so yeah. it's kind of important yeah. anyway getting back to <laughs> west ham um you know they were like mrs mendy um we're from west ham we'd like ambrose to come down mm. to our, to our club and and my mum quickly reminded them that I'd been going to Chelsea um, and they'd said that it was actually on the date was the, the time when they were legitimately allowed to approach. So there was this amazing man, Wally St. Pierre, who really was um, at the heart of West Ham's yeah. discoveries yeah. and achievements, etc. John Lyle and Ronnie Boyce. Legend John Lyle. And, yeah, well, John Lyle was the mm. reserve team manager and Ronnie Boyce ran the youth team. Mm. So they... they and produced a couple of uh, notes, I think it was two £5 notes, mm. and um, discussion was all done. <laughs> a taxi was going to arrive the next morning, and it took me to Chadwell Heath. Yeah. And arrived at Chadwell Heath, just looking round, it was amazing, amazing, amazing. Because when I... That's West Ham's training ground. West Ham's yeah. training ground. Yeah. When I was going to Chelsea, it was in the evening. Yeah. So I'd never really seen... You know, I never saw Stamford Bridge, you know, the pitch in daylight, anything other than than the floodlights. Yeah. So I arrived the next day, uh, reported to Chadwell Heath, and they asked me to sit at the front reception, and I did. And then miracles happened. Wow. Bobby Moore <laughs> um, walked. You can't believe this. Yeah, yeah. You know, I wasn't the type of kid who was overly impressed, but fuck. <laughs> This was Bobby Moore. Legend. When I was getting gri to grips with that, thinking, if my dad could see this, almost flippantly, if Bobby went past him, hello, Ambrose, how you doing? I couldn't believe it. Yeah, mate. My then girlfriend became pregnant. And, and uh, what age? What age were you then? 16. Okay. And and that was the the end of that. So I went and played for like Walthamstow mm. Avenue, Enfield, yeah. um, Clapton, and just basically did that cir circuit until one day um, I got a phone call from Laurie Cunningham telling me that he was going to Spain. So I thought, well, that's nice, you know. <laughs> and um, like a thicko, it took me a couple of minutes to get to grips. What he was actually saying is that he was leaving West Bromwich Albion. He was going to Spain. Do you want to come? 
So it's not like it is now. Then I'd run down the post office, got a couple of pictures taken and, yeah. and that old light brown passport. Yeah, yeah. Drove the car to to Heathrow Airport and just dumped it anywhere and ran into to the gate where he was waiting and and, and off we went. It was, it was fantastic sequence of, of events. Changed my life yeah. forever because... It opened my eyes as to what was possible. Can you imagine, for example, um, Alfredo Di Stefano, who was one of the most legendary footballers, period, was at, on hand to, to, to welcome Laurie f- formally. And, um, at Real Madrid? At Real Madrid. Wow. And, and their trophy room, which I always remember, had so many trophies, and it was unbelievable. It was huge. Yeah. And... Um, they got around to asking the questions about salary, what you're looking for, and he's like, you know, so was, he, was he nudging you to nudging, nudging, <laughs> you know? So, so, so I thought, what? How much is he getting now? Double that. This is Real Madrid. They must, you know, sod that. Let's go four times that. Anyway, in the end, we came up with a figure. When we were on the plane going back. The one thing we both knew for sure was we could have got more money. Right, okay. And um, when Laurie made his debut, he scored from a corner. He had this penchant, this ability to hit the ball with such ferocity on the outside of his foot. You can go on YouTube, you'll you'll see examples. And um, they they brought him in and doubled his wages. You know, just, just, and it opened my eye. There's money to be made. Was that the start of your journey of being a sports agent, football agent, going into the boxing world, managing and being an agent there. Was that was that the key point for you? For, hold on a minute, I'm quite good at this. I think it was, it, it was going to take hard work. Yeah. Um, and there's no shirking. Yeah. But you you have to understand as well, and I'll, I'll say it quite clearly, and I'm, I'm as cockney as jelly deals. Mm. I'm as African as groundnuts. Mm. And, and I'll say this, well, the sports industry was so racist, it was rancid. It really, really was, wow. you know, to, I, was, I was lucky, you know, I was brought up in a household. My dad's mantra was never trouble, trouble until trouble troubles you. Um, also never start a fight. So therefore, if you see your brother or your sister in a fight, join in. Mm. There's, there's no separating people and this, that, and you've got to show bias. Yeah. And um, they were simple remedies to tough solution, solutions. Um you know, through primary school, and, and we're talking now in the late 50s, the early 90s, 1960s, there was so much overt racism as to be untrue. But, you know, you can have your own answers. My One of my simple answers was the only cure for racism is to violate it. It's like cancer. You can't talk, talk to it. Yeah. And we, we've all heard it said, you know, you could be amongst company of, of of black mates and uh and and simply be saying you know some of my best friends are white you could be the other way around and say some of my best friends are black um these were were innocent assessments or they were fearsome support and preachings of loyalty but because everyone always, is always asking me um sport you know how how did you foresee sport becoming across a de- decade you know sport is worth 
suppose maybe a trillion dollars yeah, yeah. and that's not an ex exaggeration yeah. but of course if we look at how football was then people needed guiding and steering you know the the, the press dubbed me you know as the leader of the black pack because the vast majority of the people that i represented were black that's a simple equation the vast majority of black footballers needed leadership what people didn't understand for example is that you look at someone you say he's black where does he come from trinidad tobago st Kitts, st lucia dominica republic is, is he off the african continent you know like gambia guinea bissau togo chad zambia zimbabwe because these are all different countries and they've got different customs and different cultures and in many respects different languages yeah. and so you wonder how do you integrate yeah. how cross-culturalism can escape and when one's making an investment and that's what clubs do when they pay these exorbitant transfer fees and salary packages when little thought is or was brought into how this player is going to integrate seamlessly mm. how is it how is it going to happen well two peas in a pod aren't necessarily the same and similarly you could have for example a nigerian player at your club and you could have um a jamaican player you know in the mid 70s it's combustible history shows the reasons why um as direct result of colonialism and these are all overriding factors i i watch television black and white you know we had one little tiny television in our house you know to get the violins out sub, <laughs> sub stories and everything else yeah. but I, I i we would sit at home and whatever came up on that screen was bound to influence you yeah. my, my sporting hero is Muhammad Ali, then Cassius Clay. Yeah. And I remember when he, he, he fought Henry Cooper. And, it, and it's strange how today Muhammad Ali is so fated yeah. around the world, and especially in this country, yeah. because what's not told is that when Muhammad Ali came as Cassius Clay to fight Henry Cooper before he fought Sonny Liston, he was vilified. The verbal abuse go on to youtube and and look at the, the record the difference and yet he turned that around and became beloved telling the truth yeah saying as it is yeah and you know i was lapping all this up you know being able to walk around the playground when we played war games when we were kids um you know everybody could say what who they were whether they were the french whether they were the italians or mm. whatever but we as as blacks weren't getting anything. What so what were we? Yeah. You know, all I knew my dad was in the RAF during the war. So I I, I was like, Yeah, well I'll go on the on the the British side. Yeah. And it was you can't. Yeah. You know, you, you can't and it's like, well, how's that possible? Go back home to my dad. Dad, were you in the RAF during the war? Yes, I was. You know. Well the teacher in school said you weren't, you couldn't have been big so of course my dad came up to school him and the teacher had words and um the teacher came to accept the fact that yeah my dad was a contributor yeah but of course we we look at history and how it's painted itself and 
discover how we can go on and go go forward. Today we have integrated international representations. Mm. We're looking at Qatar now, for example, and how many players five, six years ago were brought in to be nurtured in their growth and development to represent. Mm. Because the more times you mention a brand, you know there's only two well, mm. the more popular you, you make it. Yeah. And now amidst all, all of this, my brain is thinking over time as to how I can utilize, I won't use the word exploit, how I can utilize the opportunities that are being presented. But of course it was never open and shut. Um, again, reviled in some areas. Just just tell me, hold, hold, hold on to that, just tell me about growing up with racism in the 80s or 70s, Tell me what that meant. What did you go through? And did you ever get into trouble? Yeah, I I'd, I was pretty safe at school and in the surrounding area of Hackney because I had brothers and sisters yeah. and we would always defend each other. And and, and I, it has to be said, and I don't need to apologise and say, I had some fantastic white friends, white mates. Um, Some of them were a bit scared coming around our house because my mum used to say, if you come in our, in our house... You have got to eat. <laughs> You're not going around yeah. back to your mother yeah, and yeah, telling yeah. your mother that that you came in fed. my house yeah. and you didn't get fed. <laughs> but but they used to be fed what is popularly known as jollof rice. And if anyone's ever eaten jollof rice, you know it's almost addictive. Yeah. And um, when we meet up, at, sadly, at funerals and things like that, people go like, "Do you remember like your mum or your old woman used to cook cook, up. cook that? Yeah, right? oh, it's blinding. <laughs> it, it, it was fed, fantastic." Yeah. So, so you, did you stand out in East London at that time? I stood out in East. We stood out in East London. Yeah. You know, um, we're schools at Hackney. Yeah. Um, there was large Jewish influx of children and Navarino mansions and Samuel Lewis trust dwellings. You know, all, all these philanthropic creations which were made to give young Jewish people a chance. Stamford Hill was massively um, Jewish populated. I think there were Hasidic mm. and Jews. And, and as I said at the top of this conversation, I had some Jewish heritage. And so therefore, not sympathy, but great empathy with, mm. with the particular. And similarly, we were a large family and the grocers and everybody else were, were, were Jewish. And they do think things like, for example, um, catch you on your way home. Listen, I've got some old, some boxes I need you to chuck out. Yeah, And, and of course, you go around the back to where the boxes were half of them still had foodstuffs in them mm. and it was like look if there's anything in there you don't it's no good to you throw it away mm. and they they knew full well of course it it would have been so it was that was really 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 important but was i called a wad nigger sambo coon monkey etc yeah of course i was but i did something about it uh, and, and jumping forward, when I look at football today, I'm asked these questions all the time. Um, I asked the question back, when this was going, are you trying to tell me, it's saying this to, to legendary footballers, are you trying to tell me that when you played football, you never heard anybody call somebody Sambo or a coon or, or you black bastard or, or were, are you trying to tell me, me, that you never heard that? Your response then in that case was probably like, Take no notice, take no notice. You can't, you can't 
take no notice because you've noticed something and if it doesn't affect you, it's not going to affect you either. So there are people that I see today who genuinely, genuinely didn't understand the purpose of black people coming to this country. And, and people don't like it. They need to understand. Black people were brought in here to recreate our transport system. You know, Windrush was specifically, and then from Barbados, and then from St. Kitts and St. Lucia, where they had training programs. That's why, even to this day, 30% of your staff, certainly in London, are deemed immigrants and first-tier immigrants. So if on the one hand you understand that parents would be saying to their children, take no notice of it, you know, just ignore it, just walk away. If anybody says anything to you, take no notice of it. That made the problem become manifest, manifest to the point where it just resonated. Wow. You know, and we had to live with all this, playing kiss chase in the playground. You all played it. I know mm. the difference between our ages. Mm. You're running around the playground, you catch the girl and she's she got to give you a kiss to look and then you let her go. And they'd be going like that, fainties. <laughs> fainties is crossing the two fingers in front of your face and that means that temporarily they're out of bounds. You know, so you, you had to develop your running skills to catch and get a bit closer. And of course, when you look back at these things, they are, some of them are quite funny, they're quite yeah. humorous. Yeah. And nothing is better than somebody who says, I, I remember that, but I, I really regret it. How did, how did this make you feel, Ambrose, at the age you were at? How did, were you angered inside? Did you get yourself into trouble? Yeah, police were, were a big problem. And, and, uh, and, I'm, and I don't say this in a condescending way, because they didn't consciously set out to bring about an ending of this overt racism. You know, so you'd say to a policeman, for example, you know, he called me, he called me a nigger. Shoulders would drop and, uh, you know, really you are. You know, that, that, that's, that's how it came across. And you, you couldn't be other than abusive in your response to that. Yeah, I bet. And, you know, whereas I suppose when I was 12 years of age, um, I believed in Dixon and Doc Green or Zed Cars or whatever it was and this, that and the other and watched... Shaw Taylor on Police Five for reporting crimes that have been, and, and respecting the law, the law. Mm. And, and that came to change, you know. As a result, your environment, your friends, your mates, and everything else. In my situation, early dad, early married, um, got to go out there and, and, and earn a living, and you, you trip up. You know, you make mistakes. I don't think I've ever misjudged people that have got close to me, mm. but misjudged opportunities, and and I mean great opportunities, fantastic opportunities. And so my life has gone from early early fatherhood and stages to trying to outwit the banking system for which I landed up in, in prison. I did 37 diplomas and simultaneous degrees, and then I was released. What I'd like to say is that I utilised every moment of the time. Brilliant. But So you taught yourself in prison? I taught myself in prison, but you know those that know me would tell you, 
I joined rooftop demonstrations. Was there ri were there riots in the prison when you were there? Oh, loads. Was there? Yeah. Tell me about a riot. Where were you? Blacks versus whites. You're joking me. In prison? In prison, yeah, on the prison exercise yard. My God, tell me about that, Ambrose. Well, it, it was always going to kick off. It was, you know, a summer of ridiculous heat, late 70s. And um, this, this had been building up um, territory on the on the, the prison exercise yard where people wanted to play basketball or they wanted to play football and you know you, you, they didn't have um practical appliances in their cells you know radios tv you know like now for example um they have playstation two curtains carpets bedspreads and and then wonder why you have recidivists re repeat offenders coming backwards and forwards but well on on this there was a generation you know that I remember particularly there had been this guy called George Davis um, who was deemed to be, by and large, to be innocent of a, a crime of robbery. And um, as a result, some of his family members dug up the Headingley test pitch when England looked like winning or retaining the Ashes or whatever it was in the, the Ian Botham era. On, on, because, I, because I was always smooth-tongued, yeah. so to speak. Yeah. It was an influence for other people. Giving you an example, I, I remember being the four landings in um, Wormwood Scrubs. At the same time, every day, there was a, a bell which, which was rung, a, a physical bell, to signify the commencement of exercise. So you were now going to be out for 90 minutes or whatever. And of course, those who were football mad organized a little mini league that went on. And, and that, that, for example, uh, could be said to have led to the tinderbox effect. But in this particular instant, it's been brewing up for, for a while. Um, people complaining about the portions that they were being served people complaining that their letters were being opened and this, that and the other. Um, but you could see from the screws point of view, they were trying to push it yeah. and push it okay. and needle it. And I remember trying to, I, w I was racing down a set of stairs and a screw shouted out, Mendy, but in a, an aggressive way, yeah. Mendy, Mendy. So I pretended I never heard him. Just carried on that Mendy. And um, so I, oh, I turned around, get up here. You know, I'm not a mug, mm. so you shouldn't be speaking to me like mm. in this manner. Mm. But now it was like ego. So I slowly walked up to them. I already missed the football. And uh, I said, well, can't, you know, now it's, we, we can, he'd been giving me abuse. I thought I'd give him some abuse, mm. you know. Can't you meet me halfway? You know, you flash black no. bastard. Yeah, seriously. So I said, well, what did you, you know, I don't know why I, I bothered to say this or why we even say this. What did you say? I'd heard what he said. Mm. He said, I, I said, you black bastard. Anyway, I'm walking towards him and every fibre of my body tells me it's twitching and, and I, I'm now going to make the mistake of all mistakes to chin him. Mm. And um, something came over me. And as I got about four feet away from him, on a staircase, I said to him, that's 
limited statement that you've just made. What is the noun and what is the adjective? Quality. Listen, there, there's probably two, three hundred people who attest to hearing that yeah. when it was said. Yeah. And in truth, there's about eight. And but it's just one of those things that spread itself around. And anyway, when I went on the yard and come back off, he said, "I thought he's going to give me a nicking sheet, which means you're an adjudication. Yeah. You'll you'll get less letters, less visits, and everything else." And he said, you know what, Mendy, you know, we do talk about it. We have heard bits and pieces in this and the other, but I've got to tell you this, you done me like a kibber. So he said, <laughs> quite respect to him for that. <laughs> it, so, so those things, if you're not a threat to somebody, yeah, yeah. it does make a difference. Did he apologize? Did you tell he was apologizing? Absolutely. Okay, good. He, if he'd got on his knees and, and licked my boots, yeah. he, he, well, I, I wouldn't have been able to, to feel yo, yo, yo. Uh, you know, perhaps in a way that I might have done otherwise, mm. had he not said it. Um, but then this is where we come to it. Mm. About two, three weeks later, um, the whispers were going around that, that there'd been a problem, you know, like a black on, on white or white on black problem. And um, it was all going to go off on the exercise yard. And we went on to the exercise yard and, and sure as shoes, it, for five minutes, it, it made that sequence in Scum mm, look yeah. like a kid's party. Yeah. The fortunate thing was the screws all ran in, locked the, everybody on the exercise yard, so it had time to diffuse. People were able to look across and realise he's my mate or so-and-so's my mate. And so integration came about. Because if I can explain how it came from, when I was, so I now go to, you go to court, go through the system, you will go to prison for whatever it is. And um, I arrived at Wormwood Scrubs. I, I kid you not. I went through the reception phase, check, you know, take your, your, stand, your own clothes off and put on the prison standard striped shirt you know, grey flannel trousers and, and whatever. Anyway, f and follow me, walking through the prison. So there's about five or six of us. We get to a door, this guy goes in there, we get to a door, this guy goes in there, and then we get to a, a door, and I look in there, and there's a, I have to use the, the term because it's a correct one, he was a tramp, um, downtrodden, dirty, you know, the prison officers asked this guy have you got any objection to being in with a nigger can you can you believe yeah. this yeah. didn't think twice yeah. did not think twice yeah. bless him said uh, you know i've got no objection have you got any backy i don't smoke i never have yeah. done but I, I thought well it was a nice friendly thing to say anyway i won't be getting any sleep because there is no way i'm closing my eyes yeah. being in this room i want to yeah. be out of here first thing and when i get when i open that door they're not shutting it with me behind it yeah. that's that's for sure yeah but but that that remember this is this is me it's cockney as jelly deals as african as groundnuts what happens when you're not what happens when you are a rastafarian in the early days you know what they used to do they'd come in there these people have grown locks for years and years yeah. and years Take them off, get them off. It the, the system was was horrid. Mm. It was horrid, and and through there and through the travels and there, make no mistake about it. 
if they were here today and you, you're speaking to Frank Fraser or you were speaking to Reggie Cray or Charlie Cray, they'll tell you we all went through the same same process. Mm. I, this is when I first recognised my my organisational skills. You know, I always wanted to get something more out of the system mm. than there was. So turning to education, mm. for example, I witnessed change. You know, the system as you see it today, we spoke earlier, for example, about educational courses. Um, I do go into prisons today um, and talk to affected youth, particularly people who are doing ridiculously long prison sentences, and they, they no way can they comprehend the changes that are going to go on in their lives yeah. ahead of them. Yeah. It, it's, and yet some of the things we have here are, are almost set against real advance. Mm. You know, people smuggle phones into prisons. Why don't you just put a phone in a cell? Yeah. That, you know, and, and block it. You, you'll get a better success rate if, if, if that's the case. But everybody can reflect and go like all, all our yesterdays, etc. When I came out, I came out determined to achieve. That ends the first part of my deep dive into the eventful life of Ambrose Mendy. Join us again tomorrow for part two as we talk about Nigel Benn, the shooting of Frank Warren and the time Ambrose took Paul Ince's medical for Man United and passed. Trust me, you don't want to miss this one.